Hi everybody, I'm Melinda Gallant and I'm here in my living room doing another Cape Conversations. I am so excited because we have an author today and her name is Karen McGar, it is, and she's wonderful, she's delightful and a, and a terrific writer. So come along, let's have another Cape Conversations. Hi everybody, I am so excited to be doing my living room edition of Cape Conversations. Uh, it used to be fuzzy slipper, but I've now decided to wear shoes after six months. So it's my living room edition of Cape Conversations. And with me today, I have the fabulous author and nice person and a good friend, I think, Karen Magar. Karen, how are you? Hi, Melinda, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, and I'm holding up your book. Oh, that's so exciting. I like, I like seeing that next to all of uh, Joe's lovely paintings. Yes, doesn't it look good? <laughs> but the Cape Cod Scottish connection, that's really nice. That's it, that's it. So Karen, we've known each, how long have we known each other? My goodness, oh, a few years. Since um, Mashpee Commons days, which was yeah. God. Oh, 15, 15 years ago, 20, 20 years ago. I mean, I worked there 16, so. Yeah. Probably about 20 years. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. They're funny. Neither one of us have aged at all. I know. It's really weird, it's, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> anyway, um, so you've written this book, which is a little bit about your childhood, I think, and your life. And, and um, you're, you're a wee Scottish lass, you are. Yeah. And you were originally, were you born in Scotland or were you born in England? Yeah. No, I was born in Glasgow and I lived there till I was 14. And then mm -hmm. we moved down south, as we would say, which is England. So if yes. you say down south in the UK, it means you went to England, any part of England. But, you know, it's interesting. Anyway, down south is England. Yeah. So my dad worked at the Chrysler car plant and they closed oh. the doors. Um, and the unemployment in Scotland at the time was really harsh, terrible numbers. And there was really no future in that that period of time so wow. we we moved to england but it happened very quickly so you know one day i was at school in scotland in a very traditional school with a full uniform and tie and the blazer and everything and then within about a week i was at a very liberal school in england where we called teachers by their first name and everything was new and so it was quite it was quite a big period of my life well, it was a big change for sure. Mm -hmm. And it was a culture yeah. shock. It was actually. <laughs> yeah. It sounds funny because everybody thinks, you know, oh, the UK, but there is a massive difference between Scotland and England and obviously Ireland um, and mm -hmm. Wales as well. So we moved there and my parents lived there for many years. And then one day my dad called and said they were moving back to Scotland which was very surprising because they'd lived there for 17 years and by then I was living here on the Cape yeah and it was a bit of a shock that they were moving back and the book is about their time when they go back to this wee Scottish village right. population 239 wow where did <laughs> yeah. you live in England what 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 um, Kings in Buckinghamshire Buckinghamshire so about an hour away from London so we lived there and then um they moved back to scotland and that was that was the beginning of the tales <laughs> now you how often did you visit your parents i know they're both gone now right 
Your, yeah, they're both gone. My mom passed away last year. Um, my dad's been going almost 10 years. I used to go all the time. I mean, I still, I still, obviously not this year, I haven't been there, but yeah. I, I've always maintained very, very close connections with that. And I used to go at least twice a year with my son. Uh, and then I would take, you know, like girls week or weekend or whatever to go to England or maybe Scotland. So a lot. I've never really sort of been away for anything more than I think about a year is the longest. Or actually, this is probably the longest I've never been. So, right. Well, they don't want us there right now. No, you can't really go anywhere right now, can we? <laughs> <laughs> We're not welcome anywhere. It's we're not even welcome in Rhode Island, I don't think, which is really, <laughs> anyway, so, so uh, you have, I've known you because you've written other things, mm -hmm. so give us a little bit of idea of your, your writing background, and why did you start, I mean, was it a, just a cathartic thing to do, or did you just have this nudge, I've got a story, and I have to tell it? always love telling stories and obviously coming from Scotland where we're really big on storytelling you know everybody that I know who comes from Scotland they're really great it's spinning a yarn everybody goes to the pub everybody tells stories it's that real sense of community that you know you live in a small place you know everybody and it's very much like that so that's part of my DNA obviously you know yeah. being a Scottish person um, when I was eight, my Nana gave me a little diary and it was the one with the little lock and key. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, yes. and everybody, it's funny, everybody remembers that little diary. I, mean, I had one. Yeah, everybody, right? Every, so, so many people I know had that little diary. So mm. she gave that to me and I was fascinated by the fact that I had something, I was an only child. I am still an only child. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> um, and she gave that to me and I would write all these little things in it. And I would love the fact of I was locking away all my little secrets. So that sort of got me started because I think as an only child, you feel like your parents know everything about you and they're always around you. And there's, you know, you don't have siblings where they've got their attention on somebody else. So I would lock all my little secrets, as I would call them, away in my diary. Of course, you know, the key's so flimsy, isn't it? You could yeah, just breathe yeah. on and it would open up. And you, you know your mother that. peaked. Did your mother peak <laughs> in it? Sure. I'm, sure she, I'm sure she did. <laughs> and I was only eight, so my life wasn't yeah. really that interesting, you know, <laughs> my friends, whatever. But I was really fascinated by that. And I was always fascinated by the fact that when I was around, say, my mom and my nana, they would talk about people. They were quite gossipy. And they would say all these words like, um, Hussy, that was one of my favorite oh, yes. words. Somebody would be a hussy or a, a harlot or these, oh. all these words that started with H and I was fascinated by that. So I'd write them all in my little book. No idea <laughs> what they meant, obviously. <laughs> so that's really how it started. And then literally every year since I've been eight, which is a long time now that I'm in my 50s, um, I've written a diary. Oh. Um, so I have tons and tons and tons of diaries. And at the end of the year, and it's not even a year now because it doesn't take me that long to fill one up. I mean, the t few weeks I've been here, I've filled up so many books. Anyway, <laughs> I wrap them up like a little gift. It's just something that I've always done. I buy gift wrap and I wrap them up and I put them in my mum's old steamer trunk. And so the trunk is obviously overflown at this point, but it's just something that I've always done. It's always something that I've loved. It's a daily practice. 
it's just a part of what I've always done. So. So I know that you've written plays. Besides mm -hmm. this book, you've written plays. How did you start writing plays? So I was in a Pilates class in Mashpee Commons mm -hmm. with a woman called Betsy, Betsy Mangan, who you know. I do. Um, who has be since become a dear friend. Yeah. And we were lying on the floor and the class was so funny and I always struggled. I'm not somebody who's really into exercise and it's a bit of a trouble. Yeah, I'd rather have tea and biscuits for the, the next exercise. Um, I'd rather have a glass of wine and biscuits. That's good as well. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the class was just comical because it was just as funny. It was just amusing to me because everybody was at different levels and some people were very interested in it and some people were just there because it was a fun place to be. And a play was written, as you know, a leg up was written because of that. And, you know, we did that in different places around the Cape and it was very well received. Yeah. And that was sort of my first opening to say, oh, I actually can write something and people can read it. Because until that point, everything had been tucked away in the trunk. Or oh my up. gosh. Well, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and then it just sort of went on from there with different plays and all sorts of writing. Now, I, I know, um, personally, I know you have a son who lives in Arizona. I do. My son's in Arizona. Yeah. And you, so, you spend some time out there. I do spend some time out there. I spent last winter out there, which was quite lovely after almost 30 years of New England winters. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to spend the winter there again. Yeah. But yeah, so, yeah, I, so I spent it's nice to spend time with him. He's my only one. So we're very close and we spend some time out there together. That's wonderful. I, I absolutely love the Phoenix Scottsdale area and Sedona. Although Sedona's got winter weather. So sometimes right. it's beautiful, but it can also be really cold and snowy. So people are surprised by that, right? People think yeah. it doesn't snow in the desert. And even last year when I was there in the winter, there were so many days, Linda, when it was freezing at night. Like it, yeah. You just oh, yeah. imagine it's so cold in the desert, but it gets so cold in the desert. So uh, I had a friend who moved from Ohio to Tucson, but she yeah. lived in Phoenix for, I think, maybe six months before she made the transition to Tucson. Uh -huh. And she lived out on the outskirts of Phoenix. And I'm not sure the name of the town. It might have been Mesa. might have been in that area. It was close to a college. And she woke up one yeah. morning in her condo, and there was a bobcat laying on the wall. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Bobcats and she had tarantulas out there. And she said, you know, for a girl from Ohio, it was a little yeah. bit much, but she got used to it. Of course, yeah. now she's down in Tucson and, and the you know, again, it's that same desert, you know, atmosphere. Oh, but it's it, it's, it's so nice. beautiful in, in the winter. Yeah, the winter it's really nice. In the summer, no thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. Way too yeah. hot. Really, really hot. All right. So back to this book yeah um which i'm going to hold it up again it is called tales from a wee scottish village how did you get the title just sort of came to me um like i say those grown up with you know tales people telling all sorts of tales tall yeah. tales tall tales all sorts of tales and a, a place um, i think the population now is over 300 but as i said when my parents moved there it was 239 so that is definitely a wee scottish village yes. um, and i just 
I love, I just like the title from the beginning, even before yeah. I had the book done, I just liked the title. And I think Donna, uh, Donna Rockwell from Do Well Studio did my cover and I think she did a fabulous job. Beautiful, it's adorable. Um, it's so, I love it. I, every time I see it, I say, oh, thank you, Donna. <laughs> it's, it's adorable. Well, I like, I like what you say on the back of the cover. It says, pour yourself a cup of tea or a dram, which I love, curl up in your favorite spot and enjoy these tales from a wee Scottish village. It just, it beckons you to come and sit somewhere when it's raining outside and gloomy right. and reading. It does. And the fact that it's all they're all short stories. So, you know, it's not something that you have to follow all the characters. You know, sometimes when you read a book, you have to be very involved in it, don't you? And you have to please have a bit of energy to follow the characters and keep pace of everything. It's not like that. It's just these short little vignettes of life in the village with my parents who were so hysterically funny and, and what it was like for them. So you can sort of just go in and out of it as, as you please, which is. So, so why did your dad move back to, to Scotland? They just, so, well, obviously you haven't read the book, Melinda. So I, you know what, I, I told you before we started, no, I'm reading Becoming, but <laughs> I'm just I'm Mrs. You. Obama and I can't do two things at once, but this is next. I have four other books to read, but this one is going to go to the top of the list. It won't take you long. It's an easy read. It won't take you long. So, um, so. So my dad went up to Scotland. My dad was one of 15, um, which wow. still amazes me as an early child. I know it's shocking, isn't it? Well, and he, one of his brothers, all of his family remained in Scotland. Nobody ever left Scotland. We were the only ones that left. So his brother had always lived out in the countryside and he was looking at some property in Ayrshire in Scotland and my dad was up there visiting him which was quite unusual because they weren't particularly close but on this occasion my dad happened to be there and they went to see this property in on the outskirts of the village where the cottage is and as they were leaving the the property was not to my uncle's liking it wasn't you know it was too expensive too barren not what he was looking for but on their way out through the village my dad spotted the wee cottage as he would call it and it was completely dilapidated it hadn't been you know it hadn't been lived in for many years it was a mess basically um it was a wee eyesore as he would say um <laughs> sort of like you know the blight of the village yeah. because nothing had been done to it and it was you know falling into the ground and it was owned by the state which is the castle state there's a castle in the village of course because it's scotland yes. and a castle owned, too. i've been to scotland yeah. work around i know you have I love scotland yeah, yeah. i mean it's so true isn't it literally every turn, time you turn around the corner you're like oh there's another there's castle another, yeah. oh, it's just so, not the castle <laughs> yeah this is a this happens to be a lovely castle it's beautiful yeah. and they have all sorts of weddings and occasions there it's place but on the way of the village they went past it and it was owned by the the little cottage was owned by the castle estate and they had never sold any of their properties because why would they because they can rent them out and keep them right. throughout the year um and my dad asked my his brother to stop the car and i write in the book about his older brother ignored him as i imagine older brothers do and then my dad used a few choice words and pat stopped the car and they went to look at the cottage and that day my dad literally found um, a lawyer <laughs> that was open and he went in and inquired about the house and the lawyer said, 
you know, you really don't want to get involved in that. The place is dilapidated. He actually knew it. He lived a few villages over and he knew it. And he said, you don't want to get involved with that. It's, you know, yeah, it's going to be a bad situation. And my dad, being the determined person that he was, he said, no, I definitely want to buy it. And, you know, he, the river runs right at the bottom of the river air runs at the bottom of the garden. And it's, it's picture perfect, as I would say. And my friends from the US that have been there with me, everybody says the same thing. It's a magical place. It's just like something you've never known. It's really quite special, obviously, to me personally, but it's just a beautiful place. So he found it and that was it. They, he went wow. home and told my mother <laughs> that he had bought a cottage in Scotland and she hadn't seen it. So they actually moved back from England, back to Scotland. And my mom hadn't even seen the house. <laughs> Did they have to fix it up? Did they have to do things? Oh, yeah. They, they had, had to, to do everything. Mod remodel it, right? Yeah. Well, so when they got there, the windows were boarded up. And I write about that in the book. My mother's, they got there, a friend of theirs, my, neither of my parents ever drove. They never learned how to drive, which is such a funny thing to say in America because right, obviously yes, everybody drives. Yes, yes. But they grew up, they were both city people when they were grown up. And back in that time, you know, a lot of people didn't, didn't have a car, you know, right. for whatever reasons. So they had a friend drive them from England back to Scotland. And they, you know, got out of the van after traveling all through the night. So it was like the early hours, like dawn, you know, when they arrived. And my mum just said, oh my goodness, you have got to be kidding. Yeah. I mean, you left, you took me from a house where everything's done, everything's <laughs> perfect, and you've brought me here to this place. Right. Oh, it was, they had to do literally everything. The, the windows were boarded up. I mean, it was pretty bad. <laughs> Has something been living in it? Mice and things or no? Oh, there was all, there was all sorts of stuff. Um, there's a story in the book about the ceiling. Um, the living room ceiling was basically on the living room floor. Oh. And so, and it was only one bedroom at the time. It has since become two bedrooms, but it was only one bedroom at the time. So they just had to store all their furniture in this tiny bedroom and they lived in this tiny space in the beginning, but it all got done. And through the years, my dad was really handy with stuff. So through the years, they just chipped away at stuff and, yeah. and then it became this amazing place. Oh, that's wonderful. And did you sell it or did you, uh, have you kept it in the family? No. So the, the desire was that it would obviously go to me and then it would go on to my son. And my dad had, I think it's quite similar, like in the United States, um, you have a seven year span where you can put something into a trust yeah. and it was five years into that process when my father passed away and he was oh. only 66 when he died. Yeah. So he had set everything up with the premise, you know, under the premise that it would go to me, then go to my son. Yeah. Unfortunately he died far too soon, of course, at 66 and that never happened. My mom went into a nursing home and then we had to sell the house yeah. to pay for that. But um, as you'll see when you read it, um, the most amazing couple, their names are Martin and Chris. Um, they've become like my brothers. They <laughs> bought the house. And so the stories continue. Everything continues with the house because I still go and visit and I spend oh. time there. And it's so it's it's a nice ending to something that was quite sad. Yes, yes. So Karen, I mean, you live in Mashpee, Massachusetts. <laughs> what, what do you want to do next? Are you going to write more about Scotland or are you going to write about other things? 
No, it's funny. I, I almost wish I had another book about the retails because everybody's saying when I want to read more because it's a short book, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So my next project is diaries. I, we've already talked a bit about diaries. And I used to work for British Airways as a flight attendant back in the day when I was a young woman. And I've got... Well, you're still I, young. Um, well. <laughs> You're younger than me, Missy. <laughs> well, we'll put it like that then. <laughs> um, so my next project is basically to publish the diaries from 1989, wow. which I don't think was that long ago, but apparently it was. <laughs> uh, 1990, which is 30 years ago, uh -huh. and 1991. So I had this blog a few years ago and I basically published the diaries every day. I did it for three years, actually almost four years. And it had a massive following and it was read in over 120 countries. Wow. And I know it was kind of, it was quite amazing. What is it? The and diaries then, of a flight attendant? No, it was just called Miss Magar's Diary. Ah. <laughs> um, and I don't know if the books are going to be called that. I haven't decided yet. It, yeah. Obviously, it's nice to know what you're reading, isn't it? So if yeah. you read that and it says 1989, you'll know what it is. Yeah. And obviously, such a different world then. Um, you know, yeah, I was traveling all over the world, which was amazing. But we didn't have technology like we have now. We would write letters and wait for letters and mm -hmm. no social media. So I feel like it's such a different time that mm -hmm. it's quite nice to you know, have something that's completely different to the world that we're in now. So well, that, and, yeah, and it, it's, it, you become very nostalgic for that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. People sent, people sent cards, they wrote letters. Right. They actually picked up a landline and called you and you could kind of hear them <laughs> most of the time. It's true, isn't it? There was no on the phone, you know, that sound. Um, so I mean that it's a very kind of room almost now it becomes romantic. Mm -hmm. And somebody that? was talking about it the other day, um, a young woman that I know, and she's she's the age that I was when I started. So in 1989, I was 21, almost 22. And it's really about this young woman's journey, just finding her way in the world, which we've all done that, obviously. Maybe you know, maybe we do it in different places, but we all have the same journey to find you know who we are and she said oh it's historical fiction <laughs> and I said mm, historical and she said well it's over 30 years isn't that historical so I was a little bit offended by that but that's okay and I said no it's not fiction it's fact it's actually my diary I so. I should be my friend after that <laughs> <laughs> that's enough for you <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what's really awful is we get our, I mean, I have grandkids, as you well know, and, and they get hysterical when they talk about, what, what do you mean you didn't have a computer? I said, I didn't have a computer until 1992. Right. They just, they can't they imagine what it was like. Yeah. And in many ways, we can't imagine what it was like either because it's such a part of our life, isn't it? Um, I mean. Right now, obviously, you know, we're not, geographically, we're not that far apart at the moment, right. but we could be anywhere in the world talking to each other. I and, I, and, you know, you're in my little hobbit office, as I call it, you know, Kate, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're in your living room and we're having a conversation. It's, I think it's quite amazing. I'm still surprised by it all. <laughs> it is. So, Karen, is there a special passage you could read to us today? Um, I could read, well, you said um, you've read the prologue, right? Which is, so, it is, it'll, it grabs you, especially about, you know, this person sitting on a bus with her dad behind her and she's trying to be brave 
And right. she's 14, the most vulnerable age for a girl. Yes, isn't it? It's such a difficult, <laughs> yeah. it's such a difficult age to, to uproot everything and change yeah. everything, yeah. right? So scary. shall I read the prologue then? Sure, that would be great. I think people would love it. Just to set it up, obviously. Yeah. And it's not too long, so that's good. Yes. All right, so I shall begin the prologue. Excellent. Um, and I have a sty in my eye, so I'm only using one eye today. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. The audience likes all these details. I am an open book. Well, I am an open book. Open book. Yes. <laughs> okay, probably book you, I'm going to give you ideas for a book, I think, so. <laughs> okay, that's water I'm drinking, just so you know. Okay. Prologue. <laughs> With tears streaming down her cheeks faster than she can wipe them away, Mum waves frantically as the coach reverses slowly out of the bay in Buchanan Station. Huddled together against the cold and smur Scotland is known for, the small cluster of family and friends that have come to see us off wave and blow kisses until their silhouettes become blurry. As the coach sharply rounds the bend, I catch a quick glimpse of Dad in the seat behind. His smile, that I usually find reassuring, does nothing to calm the somersault my stomach does when I think about the new school I'll be starting on Monday. Reaching between the seats, Dad lightly squeezes Mum's shoulder. You all right, Lizzie? Hi, she sniffs, patting his hand. We'll be fine when we get there. Only seven hours to go, he says in a sing-song voice. You okay, hen? Uh-huh, I fib fixing my gaze on the dog-eared copy of 84 Charing Cross Road that my English teacher pressed into my palm the day before, long after the prefects had given up on any hope of an orderly exit. I've read it more times than I care to admit, Mrs. McAlpine had uttered in her broad Doric dialect, and if truth be told, I doubt I'll ever make it as bad as London, but it cheers me to think there might still be wee bookshops just like it. With more than a slight blush, she added, owned by a man like Frank. I didn't have the heart to tell her the town we were moving to was 60 miles outside of London, created purely to aid with the post-war housing shortage. Built on existing farmland, Milton Keynes and the county of Buckinghamshire boasted of a grid road system comparable to that of New York. Pamphlets provided by the Milton Keynes Development Corporation stated no building would be taller than the tallest tree while accompanying literature displayed glossy pictures of houses of every description. Two months prior, Dad showed up for his shift at the Copland in Linwood, where a few years before he'd narrowly missed losing a finger whilst working on the assembly line that churned out Hillman imps. After clocking in alongside the men he'd come to know during his dozen years of employment, word spread across the factory floor that the doors would be shutting that day for good. Rather than delay getting caught up in the mass exodus, Dad took his leave and made his way back to the bus stop. From his seat on the top deck, he gasped when he saw the line of men snaked around the Glasgow building that housed the job center. With the imminent addition of several thousand more about to lose their livelihood and the declining 1981 economy, he stayed on the bus. From across the dinner table, Dad looked like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And for the first time in my life, I got sent to bed. When I heard the creak of the kitchen door being shut, I sensed serious change was afoot. The very next day, Mum and I stood on the platform at Glasgow Central 
waving to Dad as the train groaned its way out of the station. Many moons before, Dad's lifelong friend had moved down south. Now married with two daughters, Harry and his family were enjoying life in the place described as, Dad described in his letters as booming. <laughs> Within a couple of weeks, Dad secured a job with a new home improvement company, and with each phone call, he sounded chirpier, excited at the prospect of the three of us being together again. You won't believe this place, he gushed. There's new houses sprouting up everywhere. One of those houses, an end of terrace with three bedrooms and a garden the size of a football pitch, was to become ours. Hours were spent on the phone discussing what mum coined the English move, a freak <laughs> patted with an extra dose of disdain. Whenever she'd hang up from talking to dad, she'd roll her eyes and ask her to help me pack. After allowing me to choose what I want to take, wanted to take, invariably she'd say there was something she had to tell her sister, mother, cousin, niece, friend. Mm -hmm. Closer it got to moving day, the longer mum spent on the phone with her closest kin, most of whom had never lived more than a few miles from where they were born. True to my 14-year-old self, I soon become bored with the Victorian architecture. My interest peaked only by the sight of the landmarks I've come to know from recent jaunts to the city centre with my best friend Linda, who I've promised to write to at least once a week. I bury my head in the pages of Frank and Helen's contrasting worlds and quickly lose myself in their transatlantic love affair. By the time the winter light fades, mum is out for the count, the top of her head pressed against my shoulder, her chest slowly rising and falling in a way I don't wish to disturb by reaching to turn on the light. My drooping eyelids give in to the lull of the engine and I drift off into a nightmarish scenario where I shop at my new school wearing my old school uniform. Waking with the star, relieved that it was only a dream, I look out at the pyres dotted across the English flat, English, flat English landscape. Guy Fawkes, I mouth, reclaiming my arm. The jerky movement stirs mum awake. Would you look at that? She exclaims her eyes widening at the sight of the flickering flames reaching as far as the eye can see. When dad pops his head between the seats and hisses, boo, mom and I scream the same piercing sound that causes the woman seated a few rows in front to shake her permed hair and cluck disapprovingly. Stifling a giggle, I slump into the seat while mom cranes her neck in dad's direction. I thought they only had bonfires in London. Apparently not, he responds. <laughs> His Glaswegian accent given the first word four syllables. Hopefully the new house will still be standing. Mum looks at me. Did you know about this? Why, of course, Mama, I frown, with my best attempt at received pronunciation. The legend of that dastardly man Fawkes traversed from the sooty chimney stacks of Londinium all the way to the craggy hills of Caledonia. How'd you wish, Messy? She says with a playful swipe to my leg. You're not too big to get leathered. <laughs> a few minutes later, Mum draws a heavy sigh that prompts me to ask her if she's okay. Hi, it's just... Her voice trails off and she dabs at her eyes. Dad's handkerchief appears between the seats. We'll be fine, Lizzie. Come and sit with me. Signs for Milton Keynes begin to appear and my stomach churns with a mixture of excitement and dread. I can't wait to see the new house and pick up my bedroom, but I'm fretting about my bike hoping it will arrive intact and in time to get me to school on Monday. Shortly after exiting the motorway, the driver navigates an endless number of roundabouts. These bloody things are making me dizzy, Mum says, her whole head lolling from side to side like something out of a cartoon. 
Ignoring the freshly painted white lines, the driver parks in one of a dozen or so empty bays. And with the engine hissing our arrival, we disembark, leaving three passengers remaining on the coach for the last leg of the journey to London. Posters with no trace of tattered edges show smiling children in park-like settings holding red balloons. Looks like the ragman's been, mum mutters under her breath, her eyes glinting with mischief. On the concourse, a vending machine illuminates a corner of the otherwise stark grey building. Go and get me wee iron blue hen, she pleads. Good luck finding that down here, Mrs. The driver remarks as he passes on his way to the toilet. Slouching in front of a row of metal benches, offering zero comfort against the November chill, my ears prick up when a cabbie with a cockney accent, so authentic it sounds fake, asks, where to, Gov? Speaking much slower than usual, Dad gives him the address. Eyeing the excess amount of luggage, the cabbie cocks his head. You coming here to live? Dad nods his response and the cabbie slaps his meaty palm against the shoulder of Dad's corduroy jacket. Good on you, mate. Reaching for the biggest suitcase, the cabbie glances in my direction. This one yours, Treacle? Upper bricks and mortar about your age. Can't keep up with all that top of the pop stuff she blasts up the apple and pears. You look up. <laughs> He trouble in strife says I spoil her. He shrugs in dad's direction. Ask women, mate, innit? <laughs> Two roundabouts later, the cabbie points to a mirrored glass structure, the likes of which I've only ever seen on the TV show Dallas. That there, my friends, is the new John Wayne station. There's a rumor, he taps a finger to his nose, that the old baked bean herself will be cutting the ribbon. <laughs> and nothing resembling a whisper, mum says, where's he seen? I catch the cabbie's wink in the rearview mirror as mum nudges closer to me. Do you think everybody here will speak like that? Nah, love, the cabbie chirps. Just the old muckers like me from London. Mum looks at me expectantly. You said everybody here speaks like that? Och, you too, dad chuckles. As the cabbie pulls up outside the house, my parents will call home for the next 17 years. Nice. <laughs> Lots of accents. <laughs> Lots of accents. But you do so well, mate. Have you thought about acting? <laughs> <laughs> do you know anybody? <laughs> We're always looking for somebody. That was delightful. Absolutely delightful. Thank you. So yeah. Much. Thank you. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for doing this and, and joining me today. I don't think I've only interviewed interviewed one other author and it was Christy Lawrence, I think. Oh, I love Christy Lawrence. She's your friend as well. She's lovely, isn't she? She is. She's a dear friend. So sweet. Well. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a wonderful writer as well. Oh, amazing. Um, but I always tell her, she writes about all these historical environmental people and I always laugh and say, well, did you got to write about sex in their life or something to make people <laughs> read the book? And she just chides me. Oh, Melinda. <laughs> yeah, that's Christy, right? That's Christy. Anyway, <laughs> Tales from a Wee Scottish Village by Karen McGarr. McGarr. <laughs> um, oh, that was kind of Irish. Um, <laughs> wonderful. And I can't wait to pick it up. I only have about four more chapters <laughs> becoming. <laughs> Will you hurry up so you can read it? <laughs> I want to um, anyway, thanks so much, Karen. Where can they get the book, for heaven's sake? Oh, so it's available on Amazon. And then if you're local, it's available at the Semi Johnson Alliance building. 
the center that the semi joint slide has. I also, if you're really local, I've also got plenty. I got another delivery the other day. So those places well, you're not like at Titkins yet or someplace like not that. Not yet. No, I haven't actually got made my way down there yet. Okay. So that's, that's on my well, list. They would love this book. This is I hope so. They would love it. They would love it for sure. Excellent. So, thank you. So Amazon, you and Sandwich Arts Alliance. Yep, for now. Got it. Got it. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. I'll see you around. We Thank need you, Melinda. To, we need to do lunch again. We will. <laughs> Thanks very much. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Thanks. Thank you for joining me today for another Cape Conversations. Oh, I love Karen McGar. First of all, I'm sorry I say I haven't read the book except for the prologue, which I did read, and she read it to you as well. But I, it's delightful. What I've read so far is delightful, and I'm sure the rest of it is too. So I hope you're staying safe out there, wear your mask, and I'll see you next time on another Cape Conversation. Cape Conversation is a Sandwich Community TV podcast hosted by Melinda Gallant. You can listen to her and all of our other audio shows through Spotify at Sandwich Community TV or directly on our website at www.sandwichcommunitytv.org. Stay tuned for future content.